0: cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today Kia ora te. this is Toby Manhire with a special episode of Gone By Lunchtime just me today alongside Chris Hipkins, the Prime Minister, uh, who's currently swapping hats back and forth between being the PM and between being the Labour leader. Uh, It's, what is it, on Monday, I think it'll be two months until Election Day, so things are really gearing up. Chris Hipkins came into the studio on Tuesday, August the 8th, uh, and we've had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, I guess. I was kind of interested to know whether or not there was gonna be a shift in gears in the campaign. Uh, we talked a bit about his, I guess, political biography, uh, back going all the way back to Victoria University of Wellington where he was the Student Association President where he was arrested uh, protesting at Parliament. And I wanted to know as well uh, whether or not he would be offering, apart from the prose of governing, some poetry in the campaign. A big thank you to spin-off members who make this podcast possible, and thanks also to Tiahe Butler, who has made it sound so crisp. Here's our conversation. Kia ora, Prime Minister. G'day. Thanks for coming up. Uh, now you're here, you're going to tell us what your tax policy is.
1: Yeah, <laughs> very nice try. I know everybody's waiting, but um, look, we're we just, I mean, we're putting the final touches on it now. We, we will be announcing it within the next week or two.
0: Oh, next week or two. We've gone it because it's been the next few weeks for a while, and I'm trying to sort of next few weeks for at least a few weeks. Yeah, Quite soon? Yeah, it will be quite soon,
1: okay. yeah.
0: Hey, um, on the weekend, Willie Jackson, your colleague, said, we should be 10 to 15% behind, but we're right in the race. Do you think he's right about that on both parts?
1: I'm not sure whether you would uh, whether it's necessarily a fair conclusion the first part of uh-huh. it, but we're certainly right in the race. I think when you look at the difficult times that we've had over the last eighteen months or so, yeah. starting with the exit from the COVID nineteen strategy, you know, the exit from elimination of COVID nineteen to borders reopened, life back to normal, that was always going to be a bit of a bumpy journey. And then you add to that the global inflationary pressure that the country's experienced. Add to that the effects of the cyclone. It's sort of there's a lot that's been going on that's been putting people under pressure and that's been just disrupting things. And uh, so as a result, you know, I, I think it's it's natural to um, to expect that the government of the day is going to wear a bit of, of you know, criticism and a bit of flack for that.
0: Um, you omitted to mention some other things that have happened in there too, in relation to the governing party. And I... When I think about your time, when you know, you're not, not yet seven months into this job. Hmm. Um, probably feels like a lot longer than that to you. I don't know. But I, when I think about those seven months, I kind of have this image in my head of you in one of those, like, inflatable boats. You know, you remember those orange ones, the the Explorer 200s? Do you remember those
1: ones? I, I remember. The, I know the boats that you're talking to. I'm not sure where the metaphor is going. Yeah. But
0: yeah. Well, let's let's put it on the Hut River yeah. just to help, just to localise it for you. And it's like... Uh, the, 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 these these leaks keep on springing up and you put your hand over and you control that. And just while you're doing it, another one springs up on the other side of the orange raft. Does, does, it, does, it, does, it, does it feel a bit like that sometimes to you?
1: Not necessarily in the sense that, um, you know, look, we have had... Be upfront about it. We've had some bumpy experiences yeah. in the last um, four four ministers, I think, six we're months we're or so. Divided, yeah. They haven't all happened at the same time. You know, they've happened sequentially as opposed to all at the same it time. Kind of makes it worse in a way. Um, <laughs> but, but the challenge with that is, you know, human beings are human beings, and you can only make decisions as a as a leader mm. based on the information that you have. So, in every one of those circumstances, if you said to me, "Would you make a different decision now to the one you might have made?" You know. When, it, when the issue first yeah. emerged, the answer to the, almost all of those questions would be yes because there's more information now than there was when I was making those decisions. Mm. But if you went back and said, would you make the same decision if you were making it with the same information that you had at the time, the answer to that question would also be yes. Mm. It's just the nature of, um, I, I guess, uh, politics, the nature of human beings. You don't have perfect information to make these kind of calls.
0: Have you um, talked to Kerry Allen
1: lately? Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I've i haven't spoken to her directly mm. um i know that she's being well supported by colleagues and um she's not in communication um i guess in the in the sense that she would normally that you wouldn't might, sure. might normally be um and so i am kind of working through intermediaries there in the sense that i'm just giving her the space that she needs okay
0: sure you talked about um coming out of that COVID period and that you know it's still a, a weird thing to think about it was so unimaginable at the time there's this sense to me, and a few other people have expressed it too, of COVID having kind of warped the space-time continuum in some, some sense. It kind of like concertinaed the time, and that's one of the reasons why I think it feels a bit like the third term. I don't say that in a pejorative sense necessarily, but do you do you feel any of that?
1: I think we feel that as a government on a number of levels. One is, um, yes, it feels like we've been in government for longer than we perhaps have been, Right. And that that is because I think people have seen a lot more of us than they would normally see of any government. So during that COVID-19 period, we were very, very present in people's lives. You know, we were on a day-to-day basis. People were tuning in to find out what it was that we were asking them to do that day. And as a result, um, you know, I guess if you like, people's familiarity with us is much greater than you might expect. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so that, that has a political impact. But the other thing, I guess, uh, which I have had plenty of opportunity to reflect on uh, as a minister in the current government, the sorts of progress that you might have expected to make on an issue or any given issue, you could pick each, almost any of them, uh, over after six years in government, we haven't been able to do that. Now, some of that, we've made some mistakes. You know, we should always admit when we've got things wrong. But a lot of that has just been that we haven't been able to make the sort of progress we want because we've been dealing with something else. So as Minister of Education, I set out a really ambitious reform programme for our schools system in particular, Mm. and it involved rewriting the curriculum, changing the NCEA, doing a whole lot of quite, you know, future-focused reforms. And in reality, for sort of three of the last six years, the school sector has basically been saying, we're just not in a position to absorb reform. Our focus on a day-to-day basis is just keeping kids learning during these extraordinary times that we live in. And so we haven't made the sort of you know, my, we haven't had the momentum in the that, that we would have expected to have. So in that area, for example, I would say it feels like we've had three years in government, not six, because actually three of our six years we were just dealing yeah. with keeping the system ticking over on a daily basis. So
0: you've got the worst of both worlds in, in some sense. People, you're overexposed, people think they've seen you for nine years, but you've only managed to get three years worth of delivery in.
1: Yeah, that? certainly. In some areas we, we, we do kind of feel like we're, we're just at the end of a first term rather than a yeah. second term because um, a, such a large chunk of time was taken up with dealing with COVID.
0: Now, the first time I encountered you, you were a bushy-tailed young student. Uh, you got arrested during that uh, parliamentary protest, which which ended up being a long-lasting and important part of your life, I think. Um, I flicked back through some old copies of Salient. I, I was editor of Salient back in the day, to see if I could find some devastating gotcha questions in which the young Chris Hipkins had professed his, you know, commitment to anarcho syndicalism or something like that. There wasn't that much of that. You weren't that radical a figure, but you were more radical than you are now. That's the passage of time, isn't it? What would that, what would that young Chris Hipkins have made of the, the Labour Prime Minister, now?
1: Uh, uh, well, I hope he would be proud of me. Yeah. But uh, I mean, in reality, I don't think my. Um I don't. My values certainly haven't changed in that time. Mm. I guess my priorities might have shifted a little bit in the sense that I probably consider things with a slightly wider lens than I might have been as a tertiary student, as a first year, second year university student. So I think I was first year at university when uh, I was contributing to your your, um, era of salient. That's right. Um, you do tend to look at what's in front of you right now. So you took at, you know, you're looking at issues, what's happening with the university, what you know, how what are my fees? How am I gonna pay for my, you know, my cost of living and so on. So it's very immediate. And so your priorities and your focus are very much on those things. Fast forward 20 years, I became the Minister of Education. My, my focus was a bit wider than that. So I was looking more at, what about early childhood education? What about schooling education? What about um, the the sort of start that we're giving kids in life? And as a result, yep, I still have the same values. I still have the same kind of objectives in politics. But I've actually got a slightly different way of looking at it. So actually, if you want greater equity in tertiary education outcomes, for example, you start that before kids are born. You don't start that when they walk through the gate of the university, because actually a lot of those kids that we're talking about would never make it through the gate in the first place. But if we start focusing much earlier, then mm. actually we can get more equitable outcomes for them by the time they hit you know, that part of their life. So I probably have a wider lens you know, still have, still want to do the same things. Still want to see everybody participating in tertiary education, which was, of course, what I was mm. uh, advocating for mm. during that time. But probably have a slightly wider view of thinking about how we could achieve that.
0: Since we're on it, uh, Victoria University of Wellington, obviously dear to your heart. You spent a lot of, a lot of, a lot of time there, um, both as a student and as a student politician, president. What's What's it been like watching what's been going on there in recent times? And can you explain, because I'm not sure I know the answer to this at all, why Victoria University of Wellington has been so much more affected by all the different kind of, uh, let's say, weather events that have hit universities across New Zealand? Do you know the answer to that? Uh,
1: I think... One of the things Victoria University has done, and I guess I can reflect on this now, having sort of a 20-year association with the university, Victoria is perhaps a little more cyclical in the way it deals with change than other universities who just deal with it more on a routine, day-to-day basis. So Victoria kind of goes through periods of just drifting along and then suddenly they do you know, a sudden quite dramatic change programme because the last time that happened was in the early 2000s when I was a student right. representative on the university council there and they had to go through a restructuring programme. They cut a whole lot of programmes. They had to get the university back into surplus, having run deficits for yeah. some time. So it, when you
0: say cyclical, that sounds like a euphemism for not really paying attention.
1: Um, well, I mean, I don't want to be too judgmental of the university, but it does seem to do things more dramatically less often yeah. than some of the other universities who are kind of doing a bit more routine housekeeping um, with regard to, you know, dropping programmes, introducing new programmes yeah. a bit more than Victoria does. Victoria tends to do it in big hits rather than just as a more routine part of it, the way it operates. It's
0: very sad to see all those courses and all of those academics likely to
1: go though. I mean, is there any... Is is there any room for more
0: support from the government?
1: Well, we are we are looking, of course, at how we can best support the universities through that. Tertiary funding is an interesting challenge. So, you know, Stephen Joyce, during his period, he chose to increase funding for some subject areas like science, mm-hmm. you know, the STEM subjects, but not for the art subjects. In our time in government, we've tended to do relatively blanket across the board funding adjustments for the universities. By funding adjustments, I mean increases in funding. Um, but there's still that kind of legacy there. Um, there there's also just, let, let's be frank about it, there's a, there are changing views around tertiary education and changing patterns of participation. More people are wanting to balance tertiary education participation with other aspects of their life than they did previously. So more students want to study part-time. They want to have study options that work around their lives rather than them structuring their whole life around their university study. And I do think universities globally are really grappling with this. People want to be able to work, work and learn at the same time. And uh, and I think the universities still have quite a traditional way of thinking about you know their modes of delivery They perhaps need to adapt a bit more to that.
0: Mm. Very briefly, you as Education Minister declined a request for the university to change its name to Wellington University. Every time I see it, it's described as, like on social media, there's no mention of Victoria's dead. How do you feel about that?
1: Um, <clears throat> the reason that I declined it was, I mean, I, I think that they'd failed the test of accountability. So there's a, there's a test of accountability built into the education legislation, and I don't think the university had met that test. Um, they didn't have the support of the community for the name change that they were trying to promote, The branding of a university ultimately is up to it. You know, the government doesn't determine what branding and what marketing the university does. But I can say as a graduate of Victoria University, I'm very proud to be a graduate of Victoria University.
0: Okay. Um, You have been... In Parliament for fifteen years—is that right? About that? It's yeah, just coming, coming up this, little bit. this
1: election will be my fifteen. Fifteen years, years
0: five mm-hmm. terms, and uh, before that you were a staffer as well. What is the? I mean, I'm, I hesitate to call you a veteran; that might be unkind. But what what's changed about that place, about politics, across fifteen years?
1: A lot in Parliament's changed, and a lot lot still needs to change. I think Parliament as a whole is getting better as an institution. Um, and it does, you know, Parliament ultimately reflects changes in society around attitudes. Um, I think some of our attitudes to work, some of our attitudes around what's appropriate conduct in the workplace have changed at Parliament, and that's a healthy thing. Um, the sort of boozy, smoky, you know, um, culture that uh, would have existed in Parliament has, has certainly changed quite dramatically in the time that I've been around the place. And it had already changed in the period leading up to that. I think Parliament itself is much more of a house of representatives than it's been before. So <clears> that then you know, the makeup of the Parliament is more reflective of the population than it's ever been before. And I think that that's an encouraging thing. It doesn't mean that all the job's done, though. There's There's still a lot that needs to change. Has it become a different place in
0: terms of I don't know, has it become a more at times insidious place in terms of the nature of the politics, do you think? Or is it still a kind of place for healthy, robust debate?
1: Um, It's quite a complex question because we're not just grappling with this in New Zealand. I think this is a global trend as Mm. well. The place for healthy, robust debate in civil society is becoming smaller and smaller humanity is drifting towards much more polarization and much mm. more uh, much more insular ways of living. Um, people tend to congregate in groups of people who reinforce their existing prejudices and biases um, and away from living in environments where they're being challenged in their views and they're being exposed to different perspectives. And I do worry that Parliament as an institution will reflect that more. And, and I think that that's that's going to be a challenge for the parliament because, uh, you know, inherent in New Zealanders' decision to vote for MMP, for example, I think was an instruction to our elected representatives that we do want to see more debate, we do want to see more striving for compromise yeah. and we do want to see a little bit more stability in government policy making so we're not lurching from one extreme to the other. And I think that in the current environment we're in where polarisation is becoming more and more of a problem. That's going to be more and more difficult. If there's one reflection I would have on the more than 20 years I've been in politics now, in terms of my own views on the world, I've become much more uh, or much less binary in my thinking. You know, As you're a younger person, you tend to think in terms of good and bad and black and white and right and wrong. And then as you go through... You know your adult life, and certainly in the time I've been in politics, there's never a single answer to a question. There's always multiple different answers and multiple different options. And I've become a lot more open to just acknowledging that.
0: I mean, the polarisation you talk about, and some of the uh, invective and some of the ugliest parts of that, were experienced by your predecessor quite intensely. I mean, there were periods last year. Going around the country, where Jacinda Ardern would experience some pretty awful—I mean, harassment—is what it was. Really, um, is that has that lifted a bit now? What's your experience been in recent times?
1: I still think women in politics get a far rougher deal than men in politics do. I still think people from uh, different ethnic backgrounds get a far harder time in politics than people from a you know Pakeha European background get. Mm. And I think we need to keep working on that. And again, I think the polarisation that we see in the way people kind of live their lives now um, contributes to that. It emboldens people in a way that um, that we've not seen people in New Zealand embolden in the past. And I do think that that's something that we need to be open and upfront about. Some of the behaviour that Jacinda was um, subjected to as Prime Minister was just downright disgusting. And... Uh, Probably if I reflect critically on that uh, period of time, so nearly six years that Jacinda was the leader of the Labour Party and um, Prime Minister for much of that time, probably the the thing that I would reflect critically on is I don't think the men in politics did enough to call that out. I don't think it should be left to women in politics to call out bad behaviour towards women. I think men in politics should do more of it. Mm.
0: And thinking forward to the campaign, which we're sort of, might as well be in now, really, um, and to a large degree. Will there be the walkabouts? Are you feeling as though that part of the kind of uh, choreography of a campaign will be will be will happen? Because there was some suggestion that it was unlikely to. Yeah,
1: I certainly hope that we can do that. Yeah. Um. I certainly, you know, I love the fact that in New Zealand our politicians are so accessible compared to so many other places around the world, and I certainly hope that we can keep that. Um. I think. Some of that's going to come down to the portrayal of disturbance when it happens. Um, if it, you know, if there's a sensationalism around the way politics is reported at the moment, everybody's looking for the next distraction. I think if we could stick to debating the substance of the campaign rather than necessarily the just every day-to-day distraction. Is that a message to the media? I I guess it is a veiled sort of message that I hope that we can spend as much time in this campaign debating the substance as we do the sort of distractions that Mm. emerge from time to time. I mean,
0: it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when something like that happens, the idea of not reporting it would be almost as egregious as inflating it.
1: Yeah, I guess as long as it's being reported alongside the substance Mm. of whatever's being discussed as well.
0: I listened to an interview with you recently, um, and you described a classroom, I'm not sure if it was primary school or secondary school, where a teacher had a, had a, a motto hung above a whiteboard that said, leadership is an action, not a position. Is that, what teacher was that? Can you can you pinpoint that?
1: That was a sci- one of my science teachers at secondary school. I can't right. actually remember which one. Right. I just remember it was a science lab that that had it. Um, but I genuinely believe that you know. I think if you if you look at the challenges facing the world, political leaders are not going to be the only only people who have hmm. solutions to that. Actually, anybody can lead on these issues, and people can lead by example in their own lives. And
0: but thinking about your period as leader, half a year, leadership is an action. What are the actions that you think encapsulates? Chris Hipkins as a leader, what actions would you point to?
1: Perhaps if I could answer that in a roundabout way, and I'm not trying to dodge the question, but one of the challenges of picking up the job of Prime Minister towards the end of a parliamentary term is much of the work programme that you inherit is already kind of in train, and your job as Prime Minister is to continue to lead the government that you've inherited, rather than you're not starting from a blank piece of paper. So I think one of the opportunities that I've got ahead of me in the next, um, well, it's less than three months now, is in about 10 weeks, mm. is actually to set out to New Zealanders what kind of government I want to lead longer term. So what would a next term look like? Because it will be different to the last two terms of government. My style of governing will be different to Jacinda's. That doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with hers. It just means that we're different people. We've got different priorities. And I have the opportunity to set that out in the campaign. So much of what I have been focused on as Prime Minister has obviously been... Seeing through to fruition, a number of work programs that were already in train when I took on the job, and in some cases reprioritising as well, recognising that we, them. We, well, we weren't going to be able to do all of the things that we currently had on the table. It just wasn't going to happen, and so we had to be. We have we've had to do some prioritisation around that.
0: So in the campaign, can we expect from you then? A shift, a shift, a gear shift. I mean, you know the, you know the the, the, the old aphorism that you, that you campaign in poetry and you, you govern in prose. I mean. I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but it's been quite prosaic since you picked it up, right? By design, perhaps. Are we going to get some poetry in the in the next couple of months? Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a big adherent to that. You know, and the the poetry is setting out what you want to achieve over a longer period of time. And campaigns should be about that. They should be about the big ideas. They should be about the vision. But governing is very much about you know, yes, taking steps towards the vision that you've set out, and you know, making sure that you're you're staying true to the um, to the poetry. But actually, there's a lot of just day to day decisions, work, you know, grind hmm. that you have to do in government, and um, and you have to do that competently, predictably, and transparently. I think
0: because Graham Robinson said on the weekend that it's not going to be possible to make big promises, so. Are you going to do big vision, but not big problem? How is that? How's that going to work?
1: Look, the vision that the Labour Party has uh, hasn't changed just because there's a, um, a different leader. Jacinda Ardern and I joined the Labour Party around about the same time, and motivated by the same values and the same goals that we have for New Zealand. We have different priorities in terms of you know the, the sort of ABC about how we might get there, but actually where we are heading to um, is is still the same sort of destination, if you like.
0: How is everything with you and, and Grant Robertson, your your finance minister? He he had his idea of a tax switch that he and David Parker were keen on. Unusual, these things play out in public, but this how how it, how it how it's happened this time. That was Captain's call. And then more recently, we've got the um, the uh, boondoggle tangle. Are you guys? Is there, a, how, are there tensions there?
1: No, none the at direction? all. No, not we, we, we. have been some tense conversations. <laughs> We get on exceptionally well and, of course, we don't agree on everything. I mean, mm. I think one of the things about New Zealand politics, and New Zealand politics has become far more like this in, in recent times than many other countries that we might compare ourselves with. Mm. The idea that any kind of disagreement somehow means dissent or, or disunity is just rubbish. I, I mean, I go, um, I, I love UK politics. And in the UK politics, it's not unusual for members of the same party to be having quite heated debates in the chamber of parliament. Um, Whereas in New Zealand, there's this idea that, you know, we only have, you know, six views to be represented in the House. And those are the six views of the six different parties that we have. I think we're doing democracy a bit of a disservice in that regard. When it comes to the wealth tax, and I'll, I'll be you know upfront about that, when I took over the leadership, that work was underway. Yeah. I did want to see where that landed. I did want to see the pros and cons of what a wealth tax would look like. And so that work continued for a period of time. And then ultimately I looked at that evidence. I did discuss it with my colleagues, with Grant, with David, with Cabinet and Caucus colleagues, and made the call at that time that I didn't think a wealth tax, tax should um, proceed. But that was based on information based on evidence, based on advice. It wasn't just something that I came up with out of thin air. I actually did, I think, what, uh, what should be incumbent on all political leaders to do before you rule something in or out, you actually yeah. consider the facts and you consider the evidence and you consider the advice.
0: Evidence, advice, facts, and your tax policy is going to be informed by that too and
1: uh, by more than focus groups. Absolutely. I think, but having said that, public opinion also matters. Yep. You know, ultimately, you have to bring the public with you in any reform programme, whether it's a reform programme on tax, a reform programme on climate change, on education, on health, you have to bring the public with you on it.
0: Um, another former Labour leader, a former former boss of yours, uh, Helen Clark, has, has been uh, busy in the last couple of days using her uh, social media channel of choice, I can't remember what it's called anymore, uh, the Elon Musk one. She said... Defence policy and security strategy documents released in Wellington today suggest that New Zealand is abandoning its capacity to think for itself and instead is cutting and pasting from Five Eyes Partners. Have you had a chance to catch up with her?
1: Yeah, her on Helen that? and I have had many um, conversations. Have you spoken with her since then? Uh, I, I we haven't talked about that particular right. tweet. But yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm very familiar with Helen's views and her and I have had very robust c- uh-huh. conversation about it. Uh, And I don't agree with her characterisation of those particular documents. Um, In fact, I think New Zealand's continuing to pursue an independent foreign policy in the same way that we did when Helen was the Prime Minister, which is that we we work closely with partners like the Five Eyes partners. Um, We will, from time to time, there'll be initiatives which the Five Eyes partners pursue that we don't want to be part of. So New Zealand and Canada, for example, are not part of the AUKUS nuclear submarine arrangement. Um, and we'll continue to pursue other partnerships that are in New Zealand's interest. Our p- partnership with China is an incredibly important one. It's very, very big for our economy. It's our largest trading partner. But there'll be areas where we disagree with them as well. And in many cases, the areas where we're disagreeing with China, where we'll share those views in common and those values in common with, you know, the US, the UK, um, Australia, and so on. I think it's important that we have robust international relationships that allow us to pursue our interests and pursue our values um, and that we don't hold a sign up to the views and values of any one other player, um that actually we're 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 being independent. You think it's
0: helpful having formal leadership. in? I mean, you were just saying you'd rather have a common style uh,
1: environment where there's a bit of disagreement in public. Are you are you all right with that? yeah, I mean, look, I think foreign policy is something that because we've you know we've been striving over a long time in New Zealand for a sort of a bipartisan approach to foreign policy. Mm. My concern there is that, Um, Sometimes it just means we don't talk about it and we should because actually New Zealand's place in the world is critically important to us. So the idea that we've got different people with a perspective and with a depth of international knowledge as Helen Clark does as John Key does as mm-hmm. others do um, out in the public domain talking about these issues can only be healthy for New Zealand's democracy so um, I don't always agree with Helen and the fact that I can say that and that she can say that I think actually reflects that New Zealand's democratic system is in good shape um, and that our and our values are consistent it just means we might have some disagreement about you know the challenge immediately in front of us
0: mm. The the combined vote of the two major parties at the moment is at its lowest for more than 20 years, lowest since you've been in parliament. Um, do you know where that is? What's your analysis of, uh, is, is it because Labour and National have become fixated on this, this uh, mythical median voter and they're uh, leaving a lot of space on the
1: flanks? Is that what's going on? Politics kind of goes in cycles really. And, um, yeah, you know, the, the nearest that I would say that we are, um, the nearest comparative point I would have is 2005, where Labour and National were both polling in the sort of mid to high 30s and the smaller parties were doing quite well. Mm. And it was a very competitive election. Um, I think that's probably the closest that I can see to you know a comparison, but closest recent comparison in New- the New Zealand political context. And public sentiment does reflect the fact that it's been a challenging couple of years for New Zealand.
0: This morning, we're speaking on, when are we talking? On Tuesday, August August the 8th. Um, This might go out a couple of days later. You announced this uh, new big fund run by the US uh, firm BlackRock, $2 billion uh, for renewable electricity being the goal. Uh, Does that mean that you can go ahead and ban new coal mines?
1: Um, Look, we'll set out the policy around mining on conservation land. I mean, we've got a long standing policy on conservation land and we'll set out any revisions to that in the run up to the election, but it will be broadly the same as the policy that we've had. Um, In terms of coal, we do want to move away from coal. We do want to be transitioning away from coal. If you look at the work that we've done, for example, in decarbonising industry and decarbonising the public sector, a big part of that has been removing coal boilers. So we Mm. want coal boilers gone from the public estate altogether. So schools and hospitals and other universities, others who are using them, we want them transitioning to electric, uh, renewable technology. We want to move. We do want to see removal of electricity generation from coal. We do want to see the big industrial users, users um, such as Fonterra and such as New Zealand Steel, moving to renewable electricity. And so the announcement that we made today around getting private equity investment into renewable electricity generation and renewable energy use in New Zealand. Um is actually a really significant step on the path to achieve that. If you think about our electricity generation at the moment, it relies a lot on private sector investment in order to continue to expand and grow. But actually having a a big entity like BlackRock, who manage you know trillions of dollars of investment funds around the world, lending their weight uh, to helping to make that a reality. Um, to provide the sort of investments of, in a scale that will be attractive to the big fund investors in New Zealand, uh, that's that can only be good for our renewable energy transition.
0: I've got to let you go in a second. Uh, you've got lots of gas in the tank
1: for the campaign. I'm not even really going to bother
0: answering you that, asking you that. The debates. Do you, are you targeting the debates? Do you do you sense
1: that they're going to be more important than they sometimes are this 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 time around? Quite possibly. I mean, I I tend to think, though, and it's a really interesting idea, but in the modern media world every public statement that you make has the potential to have as bigger reach if not a bigger reach to what you might get from a leaders debate and that is different to the way the world used to operate so a, a passing comment you make in a public meeting that someone films on their phone depending on what it is that you say mm. um, could actually end up reaching a massive audience um, in a very short space of time so yes leaders debates are of course critically important because in some cases they're an opportunity to tease out ideas a little bit more um, but Almost every public appearance you have these days has the potential to to be a a big thing, depending on what it is that you're saying. We
0: don't normally see the two people who want to be Prime Minister alongside one another apart from in the House, which has its own kind of weird theatre about it, though, right?
1: Mm. I mean, that's that's probably true. Um, But, uh, you know, I think... The quality of, uh, I guess, you know, how informed people feel at the end of the leader, leaders' debates is very much going to be dictated by the questions that get asked. <laughs> Last thing, uh, donations, as
0: far as war chests are concerned, <laughs> you guys are way down the list at this point. I think that the Greens and New Zealand First are both above you, insofar as declared donations, so that's ones over over twenty k, isn't it? How much of a difference does that
1: make? So we're looking pretty good in terms of our campaign fundraising. So Uh, we've hit almost all of our targets. Um, And so we've basically almost got enough money to spend up to the limit of what a political party could spend in an election campaign anyway. Um, And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm not concerned about not having enough money to campaign on. But the Labour Party has always been pretty transparent about this. We don't get big, you know, half million dollar checks from the top end of town. We tend to rely on, you know, small micro contributions from a lot of people across the country. Those that, those contributions have been coming in, you know, our email appeals and so on, uh, generating good revenue, good income for our campaign of course, we always want more. And I'd never say no to the big donations from the, well, I might say no depending on who was offering it. But generally speaking, you know, if they want to give us money, we'll take it. Mm. Um, but they're not, they don't tend to be seeing us as reflecting their interests, I think.
0: Are you going to surprise us in the campaign? Are there are there, are there any rabbits? I mean, uh, notwithstanding the cautions about there being very limited money to spend, are there going to be some moments where we go, oh, there's a that's a real Chris Hipkins
1: sticking down a marker from a policy standpoint? Well, I certainly hope that people will feel that way by the end of the campaign, but we do have to uh, be realistic about the fact that in the current economic environment we're in, it is going to be a modest election campaign. And any political party that tells you that you can decrease revenue, i.e. cut taxes, you can increase spending, and you can reduce debt all at the same time, Really is uh, in what Grant Robertson would describe as the fiscal Bermuda Triangle. It is simply impossible to do all three of those things at the same time. A triangular hole. We've yeah. got enough
0: holes already this um, election campaign. Thank you for coming in, Prime Minister. Good Thank luck you. with the campaign. Thanks, Kyo Toby. Out. Cheers. Kia ora e here, podcast manager at the spin off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at the slash donate The Spin-off Podcast Network